Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we'll tell you about the VMware flaw that's so severe, their solution is just to disable the service. Plus, we've got new details on a major Windows flaw that we'll tell you about. And then, new research discovers that up to 81% of Tor users could be de-anonymized. Then it's a great big batch of your networking questions, our answers, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on November 20th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at scaleengine.com. You should, you should probably go check that out. My name is Chris, mm-hmm. and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, the one, the only... Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris. I spiced it up a little bit this time. You did. <laughs> so, uh, no secret, we don't want to lie to the audience. You and I are recording our second episode today, and it's fun. Yep. It's, a, it's our Thanksgiving edition of the Tech yeah. Snap Show. We've and been going for two hours and 45 minutes already. Yeah, and some of that was just because we stopped to play Star Trek online. No, I'm kidding. That's not true at all. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we got a you, lot... You, like, uh, forgot to record like an hour and That's and true. We, we did have to That's troubleshoot good. that. Um, yeah. See, that's why you should check out Scale Engine because it could bacon just, saving. It could it could it could save your bacon if you forget to record an episode. It's pretty handy. It's pretty, and not only to mention it can do like you know streaming and CDN goodness and website hosting and I think yeah. maybe solve the world's problems at least not all of them. one service at a time. Yep. Uh, Alan, uh, a lot of us try to solve the problem of server density with a little old thing called VMware, and mm-hmm. uh, you've got our first story about that, don't you? Yes. Uh, so this is uh, from vSphereLand.com, which I'm guessing is a blog about VMware. I think so. Um, and they uh, have an article about why the VMware uh, TPS flaw is such a big deal. Oh. First of all, TPS reports, anybody? Yeah, but, no, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so VMware recently disclosed a vulnerability in its line of virtualization products like vSphere and ESX and ESXi. Um, basically, VMware has a feature called TPS, or Transparent Page Sharing. Ah, uh, now, most uh, hardware virtualization mostly relies on this feature called extended page tables, where the page table is how it basically, when you allocate memory, it's done in chunks called pages. And uh, the extended page table is how hardware virtualization manages the mapping of where the pages are in the virtual machine to where they actually are on the host machine. Anyway, VMware has this feature called transparent page sharing. Uh, which provides deduplication for memory between virtual machines. Ah, okay. So basically, a process on the host that goes through all the guest memory and was like, hey, that block and that block are the same. So I'm going to free this block and just point this one over here. So now these two machines that have the same 4K page of memory are now going to share one physical page and uh, on the host system, and that's going to get free up 4K of memory. And then repeat that a whole bunch, and maybe you can save a lot of memory. I could see how that could lead to problems, though. Right. Um, well, it, it's all copy on write, so if one of them changes it, it gets a new allocation okay. and the original one stays as long as it's in use by someone. Sounds else. legit. Uh, but anyway, when, yeah, when two or more machines have identical 4K blocks of memory, you only use one 4K on the host. Uh, VMs may have many common blocks if they're running the same operating system or the same applications or yeah. both. You're running uh, the same version of the you know Windows XYZ yeah. application. It's right. the same. Uh, or especially, you know, if the VMs were created by cloning one VM, then obviously there's a lot of it that's going to yeah. be exactly the same. And right? that's Even very common. Disk blocks are going to be lined up, That's right? super common. Yeah. Uh, 
Experimental implementations show that using this method, it's possible to boot 50 Windows XP VMs with one gig of memory uh, on a machine that only has 16 gigs of physical memory. Okay, that's impressive. Yeah, so 50 Windows XPs with one gig each, and uh, obviously they're not using all of the one gig, but the part that's used up by the OS is almost identical in all the machines, and so they can fit all of those running on a machine with only 16 gigs of RAM. Mm-hmm. And I threw in links here uh, to um, two white papers that uh, VMware wrote about this uh, back when it was a new thing in 2006. Okay. So like I just said, the TPS feature is not new. It was introduced, uh, it's, it's shipped in VMware since 2006, and it's on by default, because why wouldn't you want to save RAM? Uh, so then that raises the question, why is this a big deal? Okay. And it's uh, because a virtualized architecture demands VM isolation, right? The whole point of the virtual machines is that they're supposed to be as separate as physical machines. Right. Um, this is the most important security requirement for virtualization. Each VM guest running on a host must not be allowed in any way to access other VM guests. Uh, they must be kept in separate locked rooms with only the hypervisor possessing the keys to access all of them. Right? And they provide the examples like, you know, at this point it'd be like if you had a hotel room and, and your neighbor in, uh, with the door with the adjoining thing could just open that door anytime and come in and do whatever they want. That's not what you want. <clears throat> However, VMware appears to be downplaying uh, this <laughs> vulnerability <laughs> as it obviously exposes a chink in their virtual armor. Yeah. Uh, they've, they have an issue, uh, they issued a, a knowledge base article describing the vulnerability and giving guidance on how customers can disable TPS on the host. And they've issued patches for uh, the current versions of ESX to disable it, and all the new versions will come with it off by default. Oh, oh okay. Uh, now, it'll still be, you can still turn it on if you want it, because you know, if you need to save the memory, then yeah. you can do or whatever. But yeah. Uh, but basically, they're downplaying it as, oh, you know, it only matters in certain cases. And they mm. kind of do have a point there. Mm. Um, if it's if you're using virtualization uh, VMware, like a lot of companies, you have a bunch of servers that are all yours and you're virtualizing them, then there isn't an attacker on one right. of the virtual machines attacking the virtual machine beside it. Uh, that seems like uh, the most the most obviously common deployment, but then aren't you worried that if somebody... But there are places that do public cloud. Sure, but aren't you worried just even in a private, you know, deployment that somebody could compromise one of those VMs and then... Yeah. You know, it could be for... If if they can compromise the one VM, then they might have the same chance to compromise the second VM. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's still a big deal. Especially uh, in a public cloud So that's why it's off by default, but they're definitely trying to downplay the, the... the problem here. Uh, and like, even in their knowledge base, they don't uh, name the specific source uh, that found the vulnerability or anything. They just say, um, an academic paper said that this oh. might be a problem, so we're turning it off. Hmm. Yeah, the academic paper, huh? Yeah. So then I have a link that I cleverly titled the <laughs> academic paper, <laughs> uh, which is actually titled, wait a minute, a fast cross VM attack on AES. Um, which, if you remember back, we talked about the one that you could do with Zen. Yes. Uh, and how it took like hours and stuff. Oh, I didn't remember uh, the timing, but okay. I, yeah, it, it was rather complicated and took a long time. Yeah. Uh, to get little pieces at a time and keep doing Well, apparently uh, this one they can do with VMware and it can take seconds or minutes. Uh, and yeah. So wait a minute. I get it. Very punny. Not really punny. Uh, this work exposes resource sharing in virtualization software to build... A powerful cache-based attack on AES, right? It's called the flush plus reload. Mm. Uh, we demonstrate the vulnerability by mounting a cross-VM flush plus reload cache attack in VMware uh, VMs to recover the AES keys in OpenSSL 1.0.1, which uh-huh. is the most current version, uh-huh. uh, running inside the victim VM. 
Uh, furthermore, the attack works in a realistic setting where different VMs are located on separate cores, so you don't have to be on the same core as the victim. Uh, the modified cache plus reload attack we present takes only uh, in the order of seconds to minutes to su uh, succeed in a cross-VM setting. Therefore, a long-term co-location, as required by other fine-grained attacks uh, in the literature, are not needed. <laughs> the result of this study shows that there is a great security risk to OpenSSL AES implementations running on VMware cloud services uh, that have the deduplication that's uh, enabled. So basically, if uh, there's a v a one VM sitting here that's using you know Apache or Nginx with OpenSSL to serve a website over HTTPS, if another VM controlled by the attacker can get on the same physical machine, but not even on the same core, uh, it can mount an attack where by using the same version of OpenSSL and, and causing the memory to be duplicated, they can uh, get close enough to know what's going on uh, that they can uh, manage to steal the uh, private keys, which means they now control your certificate. Hmm. Uh, or you still control it too, but they have a copy of the certificate. So they can make a website that, as far as SSL concerned, means mm -hmm. it is the real website. Mm -hmm. So then they can do a phishing attack and or a man-in-the-middle attack, and it, you know, they'll get the little lock icon or the green bar or whatever. So this will, uh, you know, someone will be able to fake being your website. Uh, yeah, so the paper describes the technique the attacker can access uh, with access to a, a VM on the same physical machine, but not on the same core, uh, can recover all the private information from your, uh, your TLS key and then use that to fake your website or... Mm -hmm. you know, Depending on what the key's for. If the key's used for encrypting email, then they can decrypt your email or whatever they yep. want to do. Right? Yep, yep. Yeah, that'd be very handy. <clears throat> you know, uh, depending on the type and setting and stuff, it also means that if you're not using per, uh, SSL with like perfect forward secrecy, mm -hmm. it means that with that private key, they could possibly decrypt any uh, sessions they've managed to record that have ever used that encryption key. Because normally uh, with SSL, you, at the beginning, you pick a random key to use for that session. But if you have the original private key, you can yeah. decrypt the first part of the transaction and get back all of it. Yeah, that sounds like something we know. that We know that there's been some circumstances where traffic gets scooped up and then people use time to go back and decrypt or they get old keys or something like that. Right, so, exactly. Hmm, uh, that's interesting. So they say all versions of vSphere back to VI3 are uh, vulnerable to the uh, exploit, but VMware is only patching versions 5 Ooh. and ahead Ooh. because uh, vSphere version 4 is no longer supported as right. of May 2014. Sorry about your luck. Yeah. Sorry uh, about note that these luck. patches only disable uh, TPS, which is currently enabled by default. So if you install the patch, all it does is not turn it on by default. <laughs> uh, they do not actually fix the vulnerability. It'll probably take VMware quite a while to figure out how to still have TPS without being exploitable. they got to work on a few more reports. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if it'll be possible to have TPS without this vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. It could just be the way it works. Yep. Uh, uh, but it seems like it seems like a pretty pretty important feature to VMware deployments. Well, yeah, especially if you're all about density, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you're, uh, you know, putting a lot of the same machines in. Yeah. In there. It's not. That's not a good thing. Or if you're a cloud provider and you rely on being able to. Over you might be tempted to look that. at other offerings that could do this in a better way. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, there, this particular attack is against uh, VMware, but I'm pretty sure their point well, is that it's... Uh, I wonder. Like, wouldn't other virtualizers general. do something similar? And yes, therefore they, ju they just 
chose VMware yeah. for their example because well, yeah. that's what they had laying around. But it right? could apply to Zen or KVM yes. or exactly any of the other or ones anything are... that uses TPS. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we'll probably f- that might be something we hear more about down the road, and we might be referring back to this very story. Uh, all right, Alan. Any other thoughts on that? Um. Nope. Okay. All right. Well, I'll tell you about Ting. That's my cell. That's my cell phone provider right there, Ting. And you can make it your cell phone provider too. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Techsnap.ting.com will give you a twenty-five dollar credit. And here's what's great about Ting. You're only paying for what you use. It's $6 for each line. So I've got three lines because it's only $6 and I love phones. And then it's just your usage on top of that. Your minutes, your messages, your megabytes. They add them all up. Whatever bucket you fall into, that's all you have to pay. Ting has no whole customer service. I love that. But what I really love is no contracts and no early termination fees. They got a great device selection. In fact, I wanted to point out that if you got the Hawaii 5072 uh, 4G hotspot, with the TechSnap discount, you can get it for $16. Okay, you can get a 4G hotspot for $16 that's only pay for what you use. Now, tell me that isn't worth it. Tell me you haven't been in a situation where you wished you had connectivity, and this is LTE hotspot for $16 when you go to techsnap.ting.com, and there's no contract. So once you get it, you can activate and deactivate it when you don't need it. You turn it on, you pay for what you use, and you turn it off. It's $6 for the line, and you can even deactivate it when you don't need it. It's so cool. And Ting has a whole range of great Android devices you can get too, feature phones, all of that. But this deal, I think this is a limited device deal. It's such a crazy great deal once you use our TechSnap discount. TechSnap.ting.com, $16 hotspot. That's nuts. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm getting one of these. I'm getting one of these. Why would I not have? And the thing is, you turn it off if you're not using it. It's so great. And they have the way you would do that is through their awesome dashboard. Ting really gives you control. They've recently updated their dashboard and made it even better than before. Not only do they have a companion app for iOS and Android, but when you log into this dashboard, I've been I've been a Ting customer for two years, and I've never even needed to take advantage of their no-hold customer support. I've called them just to see if it's true, and it is true, but I've never needed it. Like, I've activated multiple phones. I've transferred phones. I've turned phones off, all of it, through the Ting dashboard. When I order a new phone from Ting, it shows up at my house. I go to their website. I turn it on. It is so awesome. It's not that I'm antisocial. It's just I don't like talking to people. Well, I don't like also- talking to people. Yeah. I tend to be <laughs> doing a lot of that type of stuff late during hours when places aren't open. Yeah, there's that too. Like when my kids go to bed, that's usually when I'll sort of like when knock you some have of the time stuff off. Yep, yeah. exactly. So that's why I love being able to just get all of it done at the Ting dashboard. So if you're sort of a do-it-yourselfer as well, you've been needing some connectivity, I recommend you go to techsnap.ting.com. Not only are you going to get that $25 discount, or if you've got a Ting-compatible device, they'll give you a $25 credit, which... You know, that might be a pro tip way to go, too. If you have a Sprint-compatible phone and you want to bring it over to Ting and get the credit and then buy that hotspot, you're going to come out ahead big time. TechSnap.Ting.com. No contracts, no early termination, only pay for what you use. And on the front page, they have a savings calculator. And I advise you to go over there and check it out. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a really big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock. And I don't know how they're giving away uh, mobile hotspots at that price, but I would take advantage of it. And uh, Ting also just won super high marks in a Consumer Reports uh, survey. They surveyed actual wireless customers, and Ting scored, like, I think top of the list for for, uh, customer satisfaction. So go check it out. That's awesome. That's coming from Consumer Reports, too. It's way up there. They scored way up there. It's really good for them. Okay, Alan, our next story takes us to community.rapid7.com. A wonderful place in the web and it's a story about windshock cv yes. better known as cv 2014 6321 that's probably what everybody or knows about. ms 
14-066. Oh, yeah, of course. We were just talking about that over the water cooler. Right. So, uh, <laughs> well, no, but last week we talked, or two weeks ago, uh, we talked about the Microsoft S-Channel vulnerability. Yes. Right. And nobody knew exactly what it was. Now we have some uh, deets. And then we have some details, although we still don't know exactly what it is. Oh, okay. All uh, right. So S-Channel is Microsoft's tool similar to OpenSSL. It's how they do uh, SSL and TLS. So S-Channel is used by anything that leverages the built-in SSL or TLS in Windows. That includes uh, IIS, which is Windows Web Server, Active Directory, uh, Outlook Web Access, which is how you do webmail in, uh, on your Exchange server, yeah. Exchange server itself, Internet Explorer, Windows Update, Holy crap. everything. Uh, I think, yeah, I think even Safari on Windows uses it. I'm sure. Yeah. So any uh, or like anything written in .NET uses it. Everything uh, uses this, hmm. and uh, there's a vulnerability in it. Uh, uh, the figure. vulnerability allows remote code execution. Uh, so it's especially severe, and users could uh, should patch immediately if they haven't already done so. Right. So the patch came out with the last patch Tuesday, uh, but make sure you have that even if uh, you know some people have been holding off or whatever. But there, it was a big patch Tuesday, and uh, you definitely want to get those installed. Plus, mm. you need that other one we talked about last week's episode. Uh, otherwise, your Active Directory domain controller can get pwned. Gosh, I'm but kidding. In, in this particular case, an attacker can send a specially crafted malicious packet uh, into a connection that's trying to do this S-channel, uh, which is not properly checked before it's decoded, and uh, there's like a buffer overflow or something, and the uh, victim machine can then execute the commands that are crafted into this packet. Wow. Uh, and uh, that would allow the attacker to run any command they want as system which is even higher than administrator privilege-wise. Yeah, that's a mess. Uh, and take full control of the machine. And then, booyah. Because of packets that they sent. Yes. Uh, yeah, because they're not checking the packets properly before they decode them, and then when they decode them, it's too big. And they, Yeah. Uh, so Rapid7, over their CTO has a blog uh, specifically saying, is MS14-066 another red alert? Mm. Um, and his point is it's not. Um, Unlike, you know, they, they took great pains to clarify that unlike Heartbleed, Shellshock, Poodle, and all these other recent vulnerabilities that have been on this kind of scale, uh, this one's not as bad because it's not currently being exploited in the wild, right? Like Heartbleed, when they told us about it, people had already been trying to use it. And as soon as they told us about it, everybody was trying to do it against you. Yeah, yeah. Right? So yeah. you literally had zero minutes to patch before you were under attack. Right, yeah. It or, was... or sometimes negative minutes to patch. Yeah, right? it took a lot of And, and Shellshock, right? That as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Shellshock got noticed because somebody was using it against Akamai and some other places and they were getting owned and then that's how they found out what the vulnerability was. Right. Uh, so unlike some of the other ones, this one's not being attacked right now. So you have time to fix, right? You, you know, you can take a deep breath and then install the patch instead of having to install the patch immediately. Freak out. Right. Right. There's no freak out for this one. However, it is very bad and you need to install the thing. This but because it's all private still, nobody's actually actively using this against anyone. I guess as one of the reasons why nice. the details are so thin on it because they don't want to give out enough detail for somebody to be able to figure out what the vulnerability is and start exploiting it before people have had time to install the patch. That makes sense. But I expect uh, in a month or so we will see uh, a big long article explaining what was uh, possible here. So yeah, the details were privately disclosed to Microsoft and they've uh, been fixing it. So no one really knows the details of the problem yet. Uh, so there's no proof of concept exploit. That's and, good. And that's why we're safe. That's um, good. So uh, details around the vulnerability are vague, but Microsoft has indicated that there is no known exploits in the wild and that developing exploit code will be challenging. 
However, uh, this vulnerability is reported to affect all Windows servers and clients. Hmm. And while it's unlikely to be exploited today, it should be patched as soon as possible so that uh, when the details do come out, you're not going to be surprised. So do you think this goes on the list of big-time vulnerabilities that are out there that XP machines are never going to get fixes for? Uh, yeah, probably yeah. that one, yeah. for sure. Uh, and, uh, I mean... That's still a lot of rigs that are running XP that are going to be vulnerable to this, and it's boy, that's right? Just a although mess. those are more, there's no server, there's no XP yeah. servers. Although right. there are people using XP machine as a server, so that's not necessarily true. Well, but even just having, I don't even like having them on servers, the LAN. Right, but there's not very many web servers that are. Oh running yeah, <laughs> I hope not. XP. Oh, I hope not. Geez, there's probably there's probably yeah. several hundred thousand of them at least. I hope not. Yeah. Oh geez, it's just that's gonna give you nightmares. <laughs> Oh, what a mess. But at least, so Alan, I mean, I think I know the answer. I think I know what you're going to say. But it seems like it's pretty critical that Microsoft is leveraging the fact that it's closed source, that it's not out for the public uh, to scrutinize. Right. Because that, if this was that, open source code. This, yeah, they were told about this privately, uh, and they're going to get it fixed. Right. But if this was, if this S-channel code was open source, and people knew something like this existed, you you got to believe people would be digging well, into it like crazy. Look. They could look at it, but, you know, I'm guessing it's so many lines of code, it would still be hard to see. Probably. Um, but if you knew now, to look, right? That might help, but in uh, it also might have got found sooner or whatever. But, um, mm, true. It's, more we're lucky here that the, the whoever found it did responsible disclosure and told Microsoft, and instead of, you know, while I'm not against full disclosure, you know, that could have created a lot more ruckus if they had just, you know, posted all the details on uh the public mailing list and been like, oh yeah, Microsoft, have fun fixing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, now in this one, you know, they, they say it, uh, it would be challenging to develop exploit code for it. Uh, you know, it's hard to say uh, how hard it will actually be. Just because somebody at Microsoft thinks it'll be challenging doesn't mean someone isn't up to the challenge. Right. In fact, that might make it even more of, a, of an in in incentive yeah. for somebody. Uh, yeah. All right, any other thoughts we'll on this story? Watch that one and see. Okay. Ah, apparently, uh, MS fourteen zero six six came from IBM Research. Oh, interesting! Look at IBM; they're doing more and more in that field, aren't well, they? Well, if you um, been, there's but... actually an acknowledgement page for the whole Patch Tuesday, uh, and the HP Zero Day initiative appears on there a lot. Oh, that's cool! We talked about that what three weeks ago, yeah. something like that. Cool. And a bunch of other, you know, there's individual researchers and a bunch of other people. It's weird because when you look at the list of vulnerabilities, and you go in and each vulnerability, instead of having the acknowledgement there, it's like, oh, here's a page that's just vulnerability acknowledgement, vulnerability acknowledgement. Like they want to bury the acknowledgements a little mm. bit. Hmm. But it does have a big list, and you can see who found what. Hey, Alan, before we go any further, i got to tell you about my, my big list. That's IX Systems. i got a big list of things I love about them. Could be the fact that they have got that white glove service. Could be those beautiful Intel Xeon processors that power all of those rigs. Or it could be the fact that they know exactly what I need for my situation. And Alan, I, I noticed or that... Or all the beautiful people that work there. That could be that too, yeah. I noticed, you know, they've got a whole range of products. We talk about the free NAS Mini all the time. How do I know if it's time for Jupiter Broadcasting to step up to a true NAS? How do I know? How do I know, Alan? Other than all I know is I'm a Bali that has a lot of storage needs. That's kind of my benchmark right now. <laughs> when you need more hard drives than will fit in your free NAS, then you either need a second free NAS or a server. Yeah. And and these, Three you know, is when you want all the full beans, I was thinking like if, if I'm sure we have some uh, listeners that live and work and eat and breathe large enterprise all the time. This is they should probably look at this if they're looking for a nice they network should. storage. There's so much stuff that uh, lots of big enterprises already do. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's a lot there's a lot that IX Systems has to offer. They can build custom systems for you to do exactly what you need to deploy and implement the open source solutions that you have, and they're not going to shy away from it. They're going to yep. support it, and they're going to help you do it. In fact, just look at IX Systems' client list. Really good. And have, yes, look at that client. Have list. you been it's here good. recently? This is like. I mean, amazing. So the Mozilla Foundation is on through. Uh, Walt Disney World, Cox Communications, Sony, the U.S. Army, WB, NASA, Hitachi, of course, the FreeBSD Foundation, Adobe, VMware, GM, Wise, Shutterfly, Verisign, Foot Locker, Symantec. I mean, this is an incredible list of customers. Right. Autodesk Lawrence is on Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories. The Columbia University. The University oh, right. of Utah. They're the guys that ported ZFS to Linux. Oh, they're customers. I love it. I mean, look at this. And but you know so, why? So they have all these servers to run ZFS, but they still needed hardware. I guarantee you, all of these guys. A bunch of ZFS capable storage servers. They're watching TechSnap down. They're like, you know what we should do? Chris and Alan are always talking about IX systems. Each one of these customers, I'm sure, are TechSnap viewers. Must be. There you go. It's just, it's, that's just math. And you go over there and take a look and see if maybe they might be a good fit for you. Go to ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. Let them know you appreciate them supporting the show, but even better, it gives you a white paper you can download, read through it, take a look, kind of be impressed by what an awesome white paper it is, and they won't spam you. And then you can forward this on maybe to management if you're maybe looking at moving to a different hardware provider. I think it's going to be worth it. I've never seen a better hardware provider in my entire career. That's why we have them here. We ask them to come on this show because we think they're so great. Yep. ixsystems.com. Nielsen is on there. Uh, Nielsen's on there. Horse startups, Craigslist, yeah. Box. Yeah. Uh, but the, the fun one is, uh, so Prenez recently got certified by VMware to work as a, a backing store for your VMware stuff. Yeah. And you also notice that, where does VMware buy their Prenezes from? <laughs> I gotta get yeah. them from somewhere, Alan. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like, was it FreeNAS's idea to get VMware certified, or did VMware certify the FreeNAS because they kept buying FreeNAS? Like, we're using these anyway, so we should probably <laughs> certify them. You know what? I love it. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Boom. Thank you to IXSystems, too, for the longtime support now. It's great. Yes, thank you. Uh, okay. So I noticed that our next article comes from thestack.com, which is maybe one of the best URLs ever. I wish I would have thought of that, although it would have been all about pancakes. It wouldn't be about. IT stacks. But either way, Alan, I noticed it has some FreeBSD devilies on there, so it must be interesting. As what? Well, aren't those little, aren't those supposed to be BSD guys, only just evil looking? Don't you see I that diagram? I have no idea what you're talking about. The diagram at thestack.com. Well, you'll have to wait and see. Okay. So the, the, this, oh, no, that's nothing to do with FreeBSD. Well, they look like the, those are just the bad guys. I just, a little bit though, you see with the horns instead of the, yes. instead of, yeah. I could, I could be it. They I look a little more it. like the Skype icon, but yes. Bad guy FreeBSD user. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, what so are we talking about? This is an about? article about uh, oh, yes. de-anonymizing Tor users. Yeah, it's been a bad couple of months for Tor, huh? Well, well, this is separate research than what was used for that. Right, I know, yeah. Uh, but this is more how to find out, rather than uh, the one we were talking about before, which was finding the server that was hosting a hidden website, this one is more about f tracing back and finding the real IP address of a user mm. who's using Tor to hide their traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, this could obviously be used to de-anonymize people who are doing certain things. I've heard up uh, to 81% you know, of Tor clients could be de-anonymized with this. Well, uh, in a lab environment where yes. there's no other traffic, yeah. they could get 100%. Oh. On the public internet, they only could get about 81% because oh. there's so much noise. I was hoping you were going to say they could only get 81% in a lab environment. Ouch. No. Ouch. <clears throat> uh, so they have a couple of different techniques, uh, but the one that they're talking about here, uh, what they were doing was getting the user to go to a web server they control, right? Uh, 
so yeah, so uh, the research uh, was undertaken between 2008 and 2014 and suggests that up to 81% of Tor clients could be de-anonymized, that is, revealing their original uh, IP address by exploiting the NetFlow technology. Uh, so this is something that Cisco and uh, like every router has this now, whether they call it JFlow or SFlow or whatever. But uh, basically, it's a standardized kind of format that you can get reports on data uh, going in and out of, of the router. Right, so it's a way for you to get a report so you can analyze and, and find patterns in traffic mm-hmm. going in and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the technique depends on injecting a repeated traffic pattern uh, into the TCP connection so that um, you can trace it back through the network and find where it actually entered the Tor network. Um, <clears throat> and comparing the server's exit traffic to that of the Tor client and and make the correlation. Ah, okay. Right? So by comparing the SFlow data from over here and over here, uh, by injecting a pattern that you can recognize, you'll be like, all right, so on a user came to us over Tor, to our, our, our server that we set up, and they downloaded a file, and we injected a pattern into the packets. Then if we see that same pattern coming out of Tor somewhere else, or coming out and going to somebody's computer somewhere else, we know that that is actually the user that we were talking to over Tor. And now we know the real IP address. Uh, so to achieve acceptable quality of service, Tor attempts to preserve packet inter, uh, interval characteristics. Okay. Right, like how long between each packet and stuff. Okay. Right, like uh, certain types of anonymizers are called high uh, latency. And basically they'll like randomly delay stuff and they'll do a lot more but it makes the you know Tor is already pretty slow yeah, in performance it just would make it worse uh, purposely making it worse to <laughs> no keep good. more anonymous is no, horrible I don't want that <clears throat> um, so consequently uh, a powerful adversary can mount traffic analysis attacks by observing similar traffic patterns at various points powerful adversary being the FBI well, traffic analysis of this kind does not involve an enormous expense and infrastructural effort that the NSA put for like the Fox Acid Tor to redirect or stuff like that uh, but benefits from running one or more high bandwidth, high performance, high uptime Tor nodes. So you could so, do this. Yeah, anybody with a couple hundred dollars could do this. Yeah. If they if they wanted to invest the time. Well, it'd be a couple hundred dollars a you month. You just need but, a high you know, bandwidth Tor node. Yeah, a couple with of high them. uptime. And, and the more yeah, the better. So if you had exactly. data centers all over the world with servers that were scaling, you could yeah. potentially do this pretty easily. Right. Or if you're like one of the backbone bandwidth providers, uh, that means that at some point, because Tor traffic is being pinged all over, right? To, to mm-hmm. The whole point of Tor is routing through a bunch of places. Mm-hmm. So that's going to go through push. there. Well, when, if you're one of the bigger providers, like Cogent or Level 3 or something, that means there's a pretty high chance that every single Tor connection transits through you eventually. So really, it would just take a government agency going, excuse me, we need to get this done. We have a national well, in security. This case, uh, they set up a couple of Tor nodes at a university. Uh, on a big connection, and we're yeah. able to do it. Did, they didn't even need to bother harassing the backbone exactly. provider. You don't need to harass anybody. No. Jeez uh, Louise. So the technique involves uh, getting the user to download a file because you need the connection to last long enough. Oh, like okay. The web page is too small. Yeah. So uh, in their example, they used a 100 megabyte file, but they would disconnect you before you would download the whole thing anyway. So you've so. got to get them to do a persistent connection for a while. That's but that doesn't have to be that hard. On a web page, you could put, you know, embed an image that's really small, but the file's really big. An embedded video. Yeah, or embedded video that might have audio and stuff. You could do an HTML5 video that... Can't you in HTML have it just automatically start, too? You could have it... Probably. And you could put it behind something so you don't see it. But you could even do this 
you know, they might have that disabled, but they're probably going to load JPEGs. Mm-hmm. You have a JPEG that's actually this big, but it's yeah. like, you know how um, you can do, um, what's the one where you hide stuff in the image? Uh, uh, steganography. Steganography. Something like that where you just inject a huge amount of data in the middle of this JPEG. Yeah. So the JPEG's oh, yeah. actually only this big, but the right. file's huge. Yeah. Or something. So, or just a or really high-resolution... Kind of file one. Yeah. yeah, like high-resolution or like a GIF where it has is a really, really long animation or something. Right, or one that just like literally you just keep sending the same frame over and over and over until you decide to disconnect the person. And it'd be so like a, anybody a that browses sp- Reddit, Twitter, or Facebook, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or if, if, if you're the FBI and you take over Silk Road 3.0, you can embed this image and use it to de-anonymize individual people that are visiting the site. Or yeah, something. yeah. <clears throat> uh, so, it, yeah, after you get this long download going uh, off your server... Then what you do is you modulate the bandwidth of the TCP connection. So uh, you figure the most you're probably going to get over Tor is like one megabit, right? Which is like 200 and something kilobytes a second. Mm. Uh, So what they did was they would let it go at one megabit for 20 seconds. And then they would throttle it to 50 kilobits for 20 seconds. (laughs) And then 300 kilobits for 20 seconds. Then 100 kilobits for 20 seconds. And then a megabit again for 20 seconds. Keep repeating that. And it would cause, you know, this step pattern mm-hmm. in the bandwidth mm-hmm. that was not naturally occurring detectable. at exactly 20-second intervals. Yeah, that's detectable. And then all they had to do was detect that same pattern coming out because the Tor nodes are going to receive the packet at that speed and then pass it on. Uh, right. And they're still going to preserve most of that stepping. Yeah. Even if they smoosh the, hundred, the one megabit because they can't quite handle that much or You'll something. You'll still see a wave still, kind of, you know, yeah. A close enough match on this pattern. Yeah. And then so if you control an entry node and an exit node, or a bunch of both, hmm. and then you're, you control the server they're trying to go to, then you can follow it through. Yeah. Like just by looking at the pattern. Even though all through the middle and the output, it's all SSL encrypted. Right. So they don't need to even see the, the traffic. traffic. They don't care about that. You can just see the pattern. Yeah. In the, in the oh, rates. that's crazy. And so uh, you know, by collecting the NetFlow data... Uh, at, which includes you know, the time that the connection started and ended, the source and destination IP, the number of packets, the number of bytes, uh, at you know, certain intervals, you can, you can reconstruct this pattern and, and have confidence that that pattern isn't going to occur somewhere else. Uh, so if you can do it uh, either on the server as the packets leave or on the exit node that you control if it's a site, because uh, at the exit node, you could modulate the traffic the same way without having to control the website they were going to, as long as you could find a long enough connection. Um, so you could do this with people visiting YouTube or something. Totally. Although people are probably going to watch a lot of YouTube over Tor. but Unless they're ashamed. Is, or if they're watching <laughs> something they shouldn't be watching or something. Right, then yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, so you, you can be on that side. And then for the entry side, you could be the entry node on Tor itself, uh, the router in front of that, or it could be the router at the ISP. So if you, you, know, you suspect that the bad guy you're looking for lives in this city, well, there's only Comcast in this city. So you go to Comcast and you can sit on their router and just look for that pattern. Yep. Right? So you don't actually even have to control all of the Tor nodes they're using, just either the website they're visiting or, or something along the path. Uh, the other one is I imagine you might be able to do it the other way you're the user and you're going to the hidden site, you could modulate stuff you're sending to the site with that pattern 
and hope to be able to catch it on the way out as maybe. it goes to that site. Yeah, maybe. And maybe that's kind of what the denial of service attack was doing, just with huge variances instead of small ones. Huh. Uh, and then correlate the data, and you'd be able to match up the real IP coming from the entry node to the end user to the anonymous IP from the Tor exit node to the server. That is fascinating. It is so fascinating to see it, to think about how they're doing that. And it kind of makes a sense. good title suggestion there beating Tor with rhythms. <laughs> Uh, it is. Huh. Mm. Well, all right. Any other thoughts on that story? I've kind of, my mind's kind of blown by nope. that. It's like yeah, the uh, Tor Network's got some work cut out for them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they really do. And, you know, they're, th- they're considering right now uh, doing a crowdfunding. Now, they have released a response post to this research. To this particular one? Or I, I to think the so. Service one? I think to this one, but I'm not sure. They've I'll been this research because it's actually an academic paper. And, you they've know, been they, doing a lot of responses just recently, yeah. um, but it... You know, they acknowledge themselves they have work to do, and they're considering right now crowdfunding options to help mm-hmm. with some of it. So we'll probably have roundups about that when that happens. All right, anything else we want to cover in that story? Nope. All right, well, I'll tell you about DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com right now and go grab yourself a droplet. You can do it really quick, and it's going to be worth your time. And with our promo code, that's Snap November, you're going to save because you're going to get a $10 credit. So you can try it out for two months with their $5 rig absolutely free. So what is DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up a cloud server. You're going to get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start at $5 a month. That's less than one burger a week. I mean, that's think about that. That's, that's one less trip to McDonald's. I think that'd be worth it myself, I'd, yep. probably for multiple reasons. And you're going to love DigitalOcean. With 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer, you're going to be amazed at what you can do. That SSD gives you that I.O. density that makes it possible to run way more on a single rig than you used to. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. And uh, they have some great pictures, by the way, of their data centers up on their Instagram account Ooh, if you want some data center data porn. Center porn. Yeah, they're good. They're good. Uh, they're just DigitalOcean on Instagram. They have the best interface out there. They really are setting the bar. It's the benchmark interface for managing, managing droplets, the DNS, snapshots, one-click application installs, transferring machines, restoring machines, HTML5 console that gives you BIOS-level access right in your browser. It's so cool. And I really, really love the fact that they have a super straightforward API that the community has embraced. So you get additional tools that the community is working on all the time. But the best part, once you get a DigitalOcean droplet set up, you got to do something with it, right? And that's why DigitalOcean is investing in the best tutorials out there. They really already have some of the best, and they want to make them even better. So they're willing to pay for them up to $200 per tutorial. You go over to DigitalOcean. we got a link in the show notes. You start working with them. They have editing staff that can help you, and they're even hiring an editing position. Go over to DigitalOcean and check out their pricing structure. Remember our promo code, SNAPNOVEMBER. SSD hard drives on every single rig. Tier 1 bandwidth. Amazing hardware. That awesome control panel. KVM virtualization under the hood, and less than 55-second provisioning. And one of the other things that you might want to take advantage of once you get rolling is the private networking. Private networking enables droplets to talk with other droplets in the same data center, and traffic sent between those droplets across the private network will not count towards your bandwidth costs. This is an awesome way to do backups. This could be a great way to have some front-end Nginx servers that are pointing to something behind that. There's a lot yeah. of possibilities Separate you could do database here. database server, whatever right? you need to do. As you should. And the private networking makes that even better. So go over to DigitalOcean.com, promo code SNAPNOVEMBER, get the $10 credit. You can just apply it to your DigitalOcean account. 
and then you can try it out for two months. $5 rig. And their pricing structure is crazy simple too. It's not tricky at all. So if you feel like you do want to expand later on, you have really clear paths to follow. And if you need to do some testing, they offer hourly pricing, which is great. Yes. So maybe you just need to scale for a little while up to DigitalOcean and then bring it back down to your local place once you're done for like one night event or something like that. DigitalOcean can get you covered. Or you can deploy it for permanent production. We have several backend things on there. And I think it's worked out perfectly for us. We also do a lot of our new development stuff on there because the snapshots and restores makes it really easy to just go right back and try something else. DigitalOcean.com, promo code SNAPNOVEMBER when you check out. Huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean.com, SNAPNOVEMBER. And thanks to you guys for supporting our sponsors. Keeps us on the air. Keeps TechSnap coming out every single week. Now, uh, Alan, is that all? Does that? Do we yep. just, wow, I feel like the second episode's going quick. But you know what? I should probably, uh, I, I should, probably should have mentioned it last week, but we launched a new show on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. It's called oh, yes. Women's Tech Radio, and it uh, is a show that's it's a talk show format. It's an interview-style show, so they get somebody on that's worked in the technology field, uh, her journey, how she got there. And uh, episode two is probably out by the time you're watching this because it comes out on Wednesdays. And in episode one, which is out right now, they talked to Lisa Hughes Fresh. She, uh, amongst other things, took part in Mozilla's Ascend project, which got her developing in open source. Yeah, and uh, so you guys like totally ripped off BSD now there. Because <laughs> uh, she's no, married to an open BSD yeah, guy? Yeah. Is it is a BSD developer? Like I've met her at conferences. Yeah, before. that is funny. I had no idea. You, you stole the interview. <laughs> you asked the same question. How did you get started doing this? Well, you can still have her on the show. I'm sure she'd right, appreciate yes, it. I know. It's, it's, uh, it's actually very good. And I'm glad well, you know what's interesting that. is she's really close friends with um, Angela's co-host Paige on that show. That's how they yep. met her. Is uh, Paige? So small world. How crazy and is that? Turns out her and her husband uh, Andrew are very close friends with my friend Michael Dexter. Wow, really? They know Michael yeah. Dexter? Yes. This is this is insane. I didn't know any like of this. The, uh, at VBSDCon, they like shared a hotel room or whatever. And now she's uh, now Paige is friends with her, and they that's what yeah. so they brought her on to because her her journey is fascinating. She's a really interesting person. And mm-hmm. uh, episode one is out, and they recorded four episodes, and each time they did it, they got better and better and better. So by the, by the fourth episode, they really started you know because they're figuring out the format and all that stuff as they're doing oh. it early episodes. So that, that was I, that was the first episode, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, so you already have other episodes in the can? Uh-huh. Yep. Oh. Three more episodes in the can, as a matter of fact. Well, two more as we're recording, as we're as this is airing. But yeah, they do them in batch of four. Huh? You have anybody else I know already? Maybe. I don't know. I didn't know you knew this person. That's right. that's great, Alan. Uh, yeah. It's and like fresh. also, fresh. by the way, if there's anybody you're thinking of that would be good for their show, you can contact them, WTR at uh, JupiterBroadcasting.com. Yes. Uh, there's a bunch of people. Uh, the new marketing uh, lady at the FreeBSD Foundation used to uh, work at Usenix before. Oh, and wow. So she's got a whole cool. long open source history and yeah. stories and such. So you, and might, well, you might want to forward her contact info on. Yes, and uh, the, just lots of talking about what the FreeBSD Foundation is doing to get more women involved and such. You can also tweet them their Hey WTR on Twitter if you just want to do it yep. that way too. Hey WTR. Yes, I can hook them up with a bunch of Cool. People. Yeah, check it out. Brand new show. We're pretty excited. All right, Alan. Well, that's all the news for this week. So that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better. Starting a thread in our subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com. 
gmail.com. And uh, we always try to answer your questions right here on the show. You can also join us live. It's also a good way to ask us questions. Uh, we got a follow-up from Zach at DuckDuckGo.com talking to us about DuckDuckHack, something we've been mentioning in the feedback segment for a little while because we're trying to get community involvement with the project they're doing over there. Now, DuckDuckHack isn't totally new, but it was kind of new to me, a new concept to me when I found out about it. It's a way for our audience to go over to DuckDuckHack.com and take advantage of DuckDuckGo's instant answer platform. And it's open source too, which is neat because you go over there, you do a pull request for your instant answer and the code's available. And then we, the reason why that's really neat is you can actually find a, a list of instant answers that are in progress. The code's up on GitHub and you can get right involved. Like here's one that I would love, not to make this all about me, but tonight I'm taking Angela out to see Fleetwood Mac in downtown Seattle and trying to find an event to take her for was take her to was a lot more challenging than I thought it should be. So here's someone who's currently working on an event search engine. This would be submitted at DuckDuckHack.com. Once it's all approved and live, it then integrates the results into DuckDuckGo search. Yeah, you know, DuckDuckGo, that search engine that doesn't track you, that respects your privacy. Now, how great is that? You could actually make a difference there. I got a couple of examples of DuckDuckHacks that people have submitted. I love this one. I'm always looking for apps for both iOS and Android. You can append app to a search, and it will use the Quixie API to find results for you. So flight tracker app, I put that into the DuckDuckGo search, and here's a list of 32 flight tracking apps for different platforms, and I can specify down to just one particular, like, say, just Android if I wanted to. This is, and you get the icons right here. You get the App Store ratings. I can see that Flight Tracker has 1.6 thousand ratings, an average of three stars. I'll just skip right over that one because I see the Flight Aware, way higher star rating. I click it. In DuckDuckGo, I get a live preview screenshot and links to each App Store that that app is on, BlackBerry and iOS. Flight Radar, same thing. Click it, 38,000 reviews. If it's only available for one app store, it just takes you right to that app store. That is so slick. Flight Here's, Aware is better. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it runs and FreeBSD. It had good, oh, and it had good ratings too. And like tonight, Angie and I are going down to Seattle. Bars in and then city name. And then it pulls in using the Yelp API because Yelp went over there and submitted a DuckDuckHack or somebody did and used all of the public resources available. And now there's a beautiful integrated slideshow of all of the bars, their Yelp ratings. I can click on them and get more information. Ooh, Radiator Whiskey? Yeah. And I don't know if you're watching the video version, but it is the UI is when you click it, the card flips over and then it slides down and above it, a real-time map comes in and tells you right where it's at using open street maps. It is really neat. And this has all been done. It's all open source by the community. So DuckDuckGo is reaching out to the TechSnap audience. They're asking that you go to DuckDuckHack.com, submit your poll request. They'll work with you when you tell me from the TechSnap program. And you can go make search more private and more open and make DuckDuckGo more relevant. This is our chance to move the needle in the search monoculture. DuckDuckHack.com. Go check it out. Man, this, this is super slick. This is a really neat UI. And of course, I like that it pulls in Yelp ratings too because I trust the Yelp ratings. DuckDuckHack.com, go check it out. Okay, Alan, we've got a series of questions to get into here. Uh, yeah. Some of these are uh, fairly uh, networking related. First one, it's it's more about your web browser. So let's start here and then we'll move on from there. Yeah. So uh, Gizmo1 writes in and wants to know about preventing a man in the browser attack against his LastPass account. He says, hello all. I'm just wondering, how can I detect a man in the browser attack? That's the first question. And two, how can I prevent them from getting my master password and take over my account? At the moment, I am using two-factor authentication and a separate browser just for LastPass. But I'm still concerned that it's not secure enough, and it's not really handy either. 
Thanks for the suggestions, Gizmo. So what do you think? Is this, you know, somebody's a LastPass user like myself? Should I be worried about my browser intercepting yeah, um, my password? The, well, if there's a man in the browser attack, then they could, in fact, yes, uh, you know, uh, with a keylogger or whatever, catch you typing in the password or or present a fake prompt. Mm. So when you go to do something, you're already linked, logged into LastPass, but they throw up a prompt to ask you to log in again. And you would be like, oh, maybe my session timed out or whatever. And you type in your username and your second factor. And if it was quick enough, then that would actually be the attacker getting your password and second factor to allow them to log into your last password in the second location. Uh, in general, the second factor, the two-factor auth is the main thing that will help prevent you because it's such a tight window, they wouldn't be able to get the response that quickly mm. and do it. Um, and that's really the only thing you can do. Uh, yeah, really. The, be- because the best way to avoid to uh, mitigate the man in the browser attack is not get a man in the browser plugin against you. Uh, so, a not using Internet Explorer helps a lot. So his here. separate um, browser is <clears throat> the separate browser uh, will help a lot because he's not going to get a man in the browser attack if um, that browser never goes anywhere else. Right. Although, yes, like uh, he was saying, that's really not very handy and. Depending, uh, not a man in the browser, but other types of malware. System-wide keylogger. Uh, right, but also one that uh, is like a, a clipboard sniffer mm-hmm. uh, could cause problems when he's copying and pasting password mm-hmm. from second browser into yes. main browser. Yes. Um, but yeah, uh, no script and stuff and, and trying to avoid getting the man in the browser in the first place. Once they yeah. compromised your browser, there's all bets are off. Basically. Yeah, no script's not a bad idea. Uh, yeah, and basically two-factor auth is the best thing you could do, so you're already doing that. Yeah, because then, you if you yeah. have to, with two-factor, I mean, the idea is, is that if they Even did if get they your in, password... they could only get in once. Right. And, I mean, yeah. that's not great. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, the other thing you can do is, you probably already have this set, but you could also set LastPass not to remember your password and to, to ask for your password every time the browser is started. That'll help too. So... I'd be and curious to know also, what people think. Uh, certain more sensitive things, like to use my company credit card with LastPass, it reprompts for the password even if I'm already logged in. Yes. So good. that way, if the if the bad guys manage to get my password and two-factor auth one time to get mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. they can't actually get the credit card because it would need it a second time. Do you think this is maybe a reason why a lot of folks prefer KeyPass? Because it can be a standalone application, not integrated into the browser. You can still recall this information. Possibly, but then, you know, if they take over your computer, yeah. it's not much different than taking over the browser. Same problem. Um, honestly, I think viruses take over the whole computer are more common than men in the browser attacks. Yeah. Although that can easily change. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, best thing I could say is try not to get a man in the browser in the first place. Okay, Anders writes in with a PFSense question. Love these. This is Hello, Chris and Alan. Thanks for the wonderful show. I love it. I really would appreciate some help with VLANs on PFSense. I can't seem to wrap my head around it after reading numerous how-tos and guides. How do I set this up? Previously, I had an ugly solution, but I want to have all the traffic go through my PFSense machine before it hits the switch. Wow. So he goes us in here, his previous setup, where he had his incoming trunk. He says, cable from my Ethernet port in the apartment. And then he had a VLAN 700 for his PFSense WAN, VLAN 100 for his PFSense LAN, VLAN 800 for his IPTV, VLAN 900 for VoIP, VLAN 100 were his LAN clients, and 700, nice to have another public IP for testing for things right. like that. Um, I'm not entirely sure exactly what he was after. Um, you know, when he says he wants all the traffic to go through the PFSense before it hits the switch, does he mean the traffic from the internet? Because the internet will already do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he means if he wants traffic between, say, his LAN clients and his IPTV, 
again, that will have if you're using VLANs, that'll have to go through the PFSense. So his hack on his switch isn't bad. Uh, it doesn't seem particularly okay. ugly to me, really. Right. Um, in general, that's how you do it. Um, the confusing thing with uh, VLANs are the way that the tags work. When you set a port to have a PVID or, or uh, port VLAN ID, it means every packet that leaves that port gets that VLAN ID tagged on it if it didn't have one. And then when you set a, a port to be a member of a VLAN, it means that uh, packets in that VLAN can reach that port. And if it's not a member, then a packet within that VLAN can't get to that port. Um, and then if you... Uh, the other one is you have is uh, each port has a setting for a VLAN, whether it's tagged or untagged. Mm -hmm. When you set tagged, that means when the packet leaves, the tag stays on. Uh, and then the machine on the end that receives the packet has to know what to do with it. And then untagged means take the tag off the packet as it leaves. So, for example, his uh, port 5, 6, and 7 that are in VLAN 100 with his LAN clients, he'd probably want those to be untagged because if they're Windows clients, most likely the network driver doesn't actually give you any v, uh, VLAN functionality. And so you want them all to think they're just talking without VLANs. Mm -hmm. But then in the switch, you would tag every packet that comes from them into VLAN 100. So then when it goes out port two into your, or, uh, port three into your PFSense, it arrives uh, on VLAN 100 uh, on the PFSense side. But basically, the PFSense will be in all the VLANs, right? If you want your IPTV to be in the internet, then your PFSense is going to uh, be in VLAN 100 for the LAN clients to reach it. You'll have a second interface that's in, uh, which can be the same physical interface, but a second virtual right. one yes. in PFSense. Right. In that. VLAN 800, that will uh, be for the IPVT, and we'll one in 900 for VoIP. Uh, that's similar to how my setup here is. Uh, I have one VLAN for upstairs. This is my house. It has my computers on it, my TV, and so on. Then there's a VLAN for downstairs, which is all the office computers, because uh, we have a programmer comes in and works in the office. Uh, then there's a, uh, a DMZ-type VLAN. That's where uh, the public IPs for all the servers in the rack are. Uh, and then there's a, a VLAN for the... There's a, a guest wireless, and that's in a separate VLAN so that those users uh, can only go out to the Internet. They can't see the other machines... So they can't access my home VLAN. Uh, but my home upstairs VLAN here has its own separate Wi-Fi access point uh, that my laptop uses so that my laptop can talk to my other computers fine and so on. And then the, none of the VLANs can talk to each other except through the PFSense. And then I have rules in the PFSense that say what can do what. So my computer here uh, in upstairs on my home VLAN can't, uh, actually has two NICs that are configured differently but are plugged into the same switch port. Yeah. Um, that allows me to uh, access the office VLAN from up here, but the, my TV computer can't access my office VLAN and so <laughs> on. You still and secure, then, Alan. <clears throat> even, well, it's, it's more just to keep the traffic, yeah, the I broadcasts. Know, keep it tidy. <laughs> yeah. uh, but mean. also it's, it's because I didn't want people <laughs> yeah. working in the office downstairs snooping on what's on my TV computer. Mm -hmm. uh, and the most fun one was obviously the, uh, my home ZFS server. Uh, it does a couple of different things, one of which is it provides the backing storage for uh, my desktop. So I have SSDs with Windows on them, but most of the 
business data, all my like invoices and stuff are stored on a ZFS store so that it's, you know, double ZFS RAID Z mm-hmm. and everything. Uh, so that machine has multiple NICs that are in different VLANs. Uh, well, actually, it has two NICs that are lagged together and then VLANs on top of that. So either VLAN can have two gigabits uh, instead of having one NIC in each VLAN. Mm-hmm. So, that no matter, so when I'm throwing files off my desktop downstairs after I record BSD now, I can fire two gigabits a second across the LAN. That's nice. Uh, but in general, you're going to need the cooperation of the switch to do much with VLANs. Yes. Um, uh, and you'd have to provide a little more detail about what he was trying to do. Uh, but in general, yeah, uh, you put each different category of stuff in a different VLAN, and then all of them will have to go to the PFSense LAN port. Uh, then the PFSense from its firewall rules will decide, is IPTV and VLAN 800 allowed to access uh, the hard drive of you know client number two and VLAN 100? Because maybe you want your uh, TV to be able to reach out and... Uh, grab video files or metadata the latest episode of tech snap off of your hard drive after you download it probably do want that you probably do want that uh so if uh if you would like to write back in anders with more info we'd be happy to answer further but i think that's probably got you set in the right direction yeah when you uh the way vlans work in pfsense is you'd have a real nick which is connected to the switch Mm -hmm. and then on top of that you create a bunch of virtual vlan nicks uh and that allows you to actually have one physical port into the switch that's actually in three different VLANs and it shows up as three different virtual interfaces so that you can treat them as if they were completely separate NICs as far as uh, as your PFSense and firewall config go. So while we're on the whole networking topic, Fake Moth writes in, uh, looking for some DDoS protection tools. He says, well, lately I've been getting random uh, denial of service attacks. Nothing big, uh, but somebody's trying to do their job. It looks like a, not a full-blown attack, but a single IP from time to time tries to hit against my servers. So he says, uh, let's start some discussion about the best solutions and how to implement them. Here's what he's tried. DDoS deflate, an ancient script. Citadel, uh, we've, which we've talked about before. Apache mod evasive. We've also, I believe, talked about that before. Yep. He says, I tried to configure it, but it didn't work. Maybe I should go back to this one. IP table, same concept. It allows predefined number of connections and then, you know, cuts it off. Fail to ban, we've talked about, but again, it's a nice tool. Watches for log connections. Doesn't really help with traffic, though. He says, is there any open source tools that I've missed? Uh, I, w- I run CentOS 6 with IP tables. How do you people mitigate small DDoS attacks, except for the obvious manual methods, without using a CDN and stuff like that? Fake moth. Right. So I think uh, the main one he's seeing is one I've seen quite a bit lately, is uh, brute force attacks against WordPress. So they're hitting the WordPress admin page and trying to log in as admin in like a series of default passwords. And they do it really, really fast, and uh, you know that ties up a bunch of the Apache workers and mm-hmm. drives with the load average and sets up an alert or whatever. And so you can configure fail to ban to actually look more at the HTTP logs and find those failed login attempts or have WordPress log to a file the failed login attempts so you can block the IP with fail to ban. Uh, that's probably the best way. Like you said, with IP tables, you can set up, or, or if you're using BSD, uh, IPFW or PF, have them, uh, where you can say, you know, this I- each IP address is only allowed to connect to me four times. If you try to connect more than four times, I'm assuming you're doing something bad. I'm going to block you. Or you're only allowed to make one new connection every two seconds or something. Uh, or, you know, uh, you're allowed to make up to 30 new connections or, or 10 new connections in any 30-second period. And if you go over that, I'm going to block you for five minutes or whatever. The problem is, you know, you can have uh, the issues where you know, a bunch of people at the same company behind a, a mm. corporate uh, proxy or something. Sure. or Like... Uh, 
my one website actually found it would trigger the rules when uh, my students, the whole class of 40 people, uh, all behind the same IP on NAT at the college, would try to <laughs> right. visit the website at yeah. once and it would trigger. <laughs> Attack! <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, why is this doing it, you know, because, you know, their browser is going to connect, get the page, and then mm-hmm. connect and get the CSS and connect and get all the images. So it would make a lot of connections all at once, all from the same IP, and it would think it was intact. So yeah, that's the problem with mod desk evasive is that, you know, it, you if you tighten it up too much, it doesn't work, and if you loosen it up too much, and then they're still doing enough that yeah. it's driving you nuts. Right. Um, but yeah, so with IP tables, the problem is that you're keeping this giant state table, right? You have to know basically every connection and drop, knock it off the list once it's closed for long enough, and and basically you have to remember everything. And if it's a really busy server, that could be a lot, you know. Uh, with my uh, Having it turned on accidentally on a CDN server uh, in my basement caused uh, the state table to get overly full. Hmm. When it crossed uh, 256,000 entries, it was like, oh, right. I don't need to be keeping state on all of those. Uh, so, yeah, um, there's different things you can do. It depends. Uh, it's kind it of really situation depends unique, what the bad right? guy is doing, right? Yeah. Are they specifically hitting your Apache, or are they hitting SSH, or are they just sending random packets? It sounded like just um, just raw traffic potentially. It, it sounds like mostly, yeah. I'm guessing it's brute force yeah. bots of some kind against WordPress and other types of things. Um, and your best bet there is is if it's if they're actually doing brute force and failed login attempts, then you can use fail to ban or something to block them more long term. Um, although at the same time, you know, you don't want to block people that forget their WordPress password, but you know, 10 failed login attempts banned for a week or something uh, will help a lot. Um, and you can cut them off early that way. Uh, it depends on the type. Um, the IP tables one, while it's complex and uses uh, CPU, it shouldn't cause huge loads. I don't know what IP tables is actually like for that, but I've done the limit rules with IPFW before without killing a machine, even with a high amount of traffic. It's definitely probably the best solution for him. Uh, okay. Um, was it that there's CT or something? Yeah, any tools that? that come to mind? Well, there's a, a script for doing firewalls with IP tables. Yes. It's called CTF or something. Do you know what I'm talking I about? I don't, but I kind of, I kind of uh, suspect there's several uh, of them. I had to turn it off on a customer server just the other day. Oh, really? I'm looking for it right now. C- there's, there's probably a few uh, of them. CSF. CSF, okay. What's it? Let me, where's the readme here? Has the name? It's the uh, Config Server Security and Firewall. Oh, from ConfigServer.com. It's okay. very popular. Okay. Uh, it has some things like uh, called like port flood, where it detects too many connections being coming to the same port. And uh, the problem that this customer was having is they were getting a lot of traffic because they're a new site, and so they put the scale engine CDN in front of it. But then the CDN service connecting to the back end would trigger this rule of making more than 30 requests in five seconds because that's basically they went from having huge amount of traffic from all these unique end users to having a very small amount of traffic coming from a very few number of servers and it would trigger this. Uh, did I already, I already closed the email. Do you remember if he mentioned he also did he try DDoS deflate, which is another yes, it's that's, okay. uh, so one that just looks at NetSat and yes. tries to find people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that one he says old and wasn't actually yeah, working. Yeah, it is, but Citadel, it is a, which is supposed to be a firewall-based one. Updated version of that, and it wasn't working. So CFS is a little Perl script that helps okay. write better. It makes IP tables a little more manageable uh, by using the IPT underscore recent, which is uh, IP tables 
connection tracking keeps track of like the last hundred IP addresses to do something or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that even it can have problems, right? I think the default it uses is uh, 20 new connections to port 80 within five seconds, uh, which most people won't trip, but the CDN servers uh, grabbing content from a news website obviously did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can play with that a little bit. The, the state tracking shouldn't be that expensive. I don't know how small your CPU is, but <laughs> it really shouldn't be that bad. I don't know how bad IP tables is. I've never used it in production. All right, Alan. Uh, Kirk writes in, uh, I believe it's James Tiberius Kirk, and uh, he wants to follow up on the mask attack that we've been talking about for the last couple mm-hmm. of weeks. He says, I'm an enterprise iOS developer. Oh, well, perfect. And I'm extremely skeptical of this iOS mask attack. In order to sign an app that I develop, I have to create a provisioning profile from Apple that lists the bundle ID for my app. The bundle IDs have to be unique across all of the Apple ecosystem. I have to admit that I've never tried pulling the provisioning profile from an existing app, but it doesn't matter since the provisioning profile is also signed with the same code signing key. I can't use someone else's provisioning profile without also having their key. That means that I cannot create an app called com.google.gmail or something along these lines because it's probably already taken by Google. Further, the way iOS works, each provisioning profile is assigned by a random app prefix that is is prepended to the bundle ID of my app. Without the exact match for the prefix and the bundle ID, I can't access the data from the app. I know because I've screwed this up before for one of our enterprise apps and caused some headaches for us. Further, Alan saying that the air that uh, saying on air that my phone shouldn't automatically trust your enterprise certificate implies the phone does trust the certificate, which is only partially true. Even the Fire article points out that the user has to accept a prompt that comes up to trust the certificate first. But that problem right. is... Everybody just clicks yes when those modal dialogues Right, come and up. I understand uh, what he was saying with that one. Uh, and it, it turns out that when you install an app that's used with the carpet thing, you, you have say, to say yes the first time, and then everything after that gets right. trusted. But when uh, those things come up, the problem is they come up so often in iOS for all kinds of things that right. I'm worried there's... Uh, but obviously FireEye managed to do it. They actually made com.google.gmail and deployed it. Yeah, they, that was the one they specifically did, too. Yeah. Uh, but it is uh, I, so there is a bug somewhere, uh, and it's a problem. But like you said, uh, there are things people bad. can do to mitigate it by not trusting the certificate. Yeah, and so that's nice. Remember, that there's when that I prompt. said my phone shouldn't trust the enterprise certificate, this was the week before FireEye actually had the details on how yeah. it worked. Yeah, we were yeah. talking about the uh, previous one. So. Um, it sounds uh, I like I don't know much about iPhones. Sorry, but it sounds like it's the the system isn't quite as bad as we suspected. But obviously, there's still an issue. Right. Uh, somehow they could make a com.google.gmail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd love to know the details. Know, maybe the that. reason we haven't seen it as much is because it's actually hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Kirk, thank you for the uh, developer's perspective on that from somebody who's yes. developing and deploying enterprise apps. That's obviously knows much more about iOS than I do. So we need your emails. If you'd like to uh, give us uh, some insights on a topic that you follow very closely or ask us a question, maybe it's storage, security, networking, you know, anything that you come across, we love it. Systems Networking Administration Podcast covers a lot of stuff, and we've seen a lot of things. Email us, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com, or click that contact link, or even better start a thread in that subreddit. Just set it up a couple of seconds ago, techsnap.reddit.com, and then we'll read it right here on the show because now we need your emails. Hope Probably by now we have them, probably. But if you haven't sent in your question, you still can because we haven't even recorded the next episode yet. Can you believe it? I know. It's crazy. All right, well, that's all the feedback for this week. That means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Roundup. 
Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to read up on your own after the show. And a lot of these links came from our awesome subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. This first one's an, an interesting initiative that I think we'll be hearing a lot more as it gets closer. It's called Let's Encrypt. It's being put on by Mozilla, Akamai, EFF, Cisco, uh, Identrust. And it's uh, the idea, from what I can grok, is it's supposed to make getting an SSL cert easier, free, and if you use their script, potentially automated. Is that what you're grokking yes. to? Yeah, so uh, the idea is that you apt-get install Let's Encrypt, and then uh, it will find all the... Uh, Domains configured in your Apache and request the certificate or prove to Let's Encrypt that you own it by, I guess, installing a file in each doc root or whatever. Oh, yeah, right. Checking it. Uh, and then once it proves you own the domain, it will issue you a certificate and install it and set it up in Apache for you and automatically renew it every time it expires and all that stuff. Yeah. So it'll make it idiot proof to install SSL, right. which I suppose is helpful. I think that's, I th- I'm, think that's a good thing. Think that's I'm not thing. sure. It's a little weird. It's like, oh, we did some of this in Python, and there's no .js, but yeah. Anyway, it's supposed to launch in uh, 2015 uh, summer, summer of 2015. So yeah. maybe by then there'll be some more details and I think less so. hand wavy stuff and more ways to do it. I'm sure, like not just AppGit and stuff like that. Yes, it's like hello Nginx, anybody? Yeah. Uh, this is interesting. WhatsApp adds end-to-end encryption, and they're using TechSecure to do it. Uh, more than 600 million WhatsApp users are about to get end-to-end encryption, which mm-hmm. is probably a pretty good thing. Uh, that comes yeah. after the Facebook-owned messaging provider contacted Open Whisper Systems, the creators of TechSecure. And uh, I believe that is co-founded by Moxie, Moxie Marlin Spike. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I don't uh, know the details on the encryption, but even just adding encryption is a good thing. Right. Uh, this was part of the move from um, uh, John Coombe, uh, the, the co-founder of... Oh, okay. WhatsApp yeah. uh, was worried about, you know, people obviously had privacy concerns when WhatsApp got bought by Facebook. Right. Uh, and so this is part of their plan to make sure that, you know, this, also, you can trust that your message is only going where they're supposed to it, be going. It uh, makes it competitive with iMessage and uh, Redphone and a few others that are doing yep. encryption now. Good stuff. And I think uh, for those of you who use... And uh, since this is end-to-end encryption, not encrypted to the server and encrypted from the server to the other user, it means it's not encrypted in the middle, uh, not unencrypted in the middle. Right. End to end. And uh, yes, WhatsApp's uh, infrastructure all runs FreeBSD. There you go. Hey, uh, this one's got people really pissed off. Some people are saying it's the end of the Hackintosh. Seriously. Uh, Apple is disabling trim support starting with uh, their latest version, Yosemite, of OS X. It's, uh, so if you get a third-party SSD, if you have an Apple SSD, you get trim support. Uh, so starting in uh, OS 10.10, the company has taken another step down towards the path of total vendor lock-in, as the Slashdar article puts it. They say, effectively, because third-party SSDs still work, but they just won't support trim garbage collection. There is, however, a third-party app. What really is happening here is Apple is requiring that kernel extensions are signed. And if you don't have a signed kernel extension, it's not going to load at boot, which means oh, SSD manufacturers aren't going to be able to do that. Interestingly, they write a driver to do the trim. As right. Well. Interestingly uh, enough, though, the guy that creates the third party, the most popular one for the Mac to turn on trim on third party drives, he commented uh, in the slash dot comments. He says uh, that uh, it's kind of a catch twenty two because Apple doesn't release any specs for their uh, SATA drives or for their SATA drivers. The SATA drivers are closed source and undocumented, which makes it impossible for third parties to create their own 
trim driver and get it signed because anyway, they, in yeah. the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, well, so if you were going to go to the process to get it signed, I'm sure you can sign an NDA with Apple and get access to source to do stuff. But yeah, so here's Apple's response: is they well, say, I'm, can I can I predict Apple's response? Yeah. Some third-party SSDs don't do trim properly, and that makes it lose your data yep. or break or something. And this costs so, them much too much data uh, costs in support. You forgot the support part because that's it's also entirely common. possible. People buy really cheap SSDs that turn out to be really crap. Yeah, and there is a third-party uh, enabler. You know, we saw the you... Samsung one recently, where the Samsung ones yeah. would uh, get really, really slow on data that you didn't trim mm-hmm. and such. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and I suppose if you're going to go SSD, it's maybe a reason to go with the Apple one. Yeah, but basically, if you're buying Apple and you're against vendor lock-in, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> Probably need to think again, huh? <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, it is sad that there's so many apps that are locked into the Apple ecosystem, uh, especially in video everything. Yeah. Hey, uh, Alan, there's sometimes an upside to hiring a hacker, isn't there? That's our next story. Uh, so that's uh, from Norse, uh, which is a security company that mm-hmm. also does FreeBSD. Um, but they have this unrelated to any of that uh, blog post about the upside of accidentally hiring a hacker. Uh, so in particular, uh, there's this girl that applied for a bunch of jobs and uh, through some screw-up ended up getting hired in like the marketing department instead of in IT. Uh, but as part of that, when she was in a, a meeting about some new launch that this company was going to do, she... Uh, just by using open source intelligence, had learned what that the uh, competition was doing and also had learned that the competition somehow knew what this company was going to do. So, you know, this company's like, all right, so we've been working on this for like four months and we're going to be able to launch it and our competitors are going to have no ability to, to stack up against it, right? Um, and she's like, no, they know exactly what we're doing and they have something very comparable to launch possibly right before we do ours. Even. Uh-oh. And... Uh, you know, uh, she obviously ended up getting more into doing that type of stuff at that company, but it just uh, goes into talk about how, you know, uh, these type of people are really good to have because they have these skills to even, in this case, it was just like looking at who is records and seeing when the domain was registered or noticing that, well, they used private registration on this. It's the same name server, so they're definitely the same thing, right? And a bunch of things like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's a really interesting story, and I recommend to read on that. Good weekend reading, too. Uh, well, all right. Long, so uh, those of you still using SUSE Linux Enterprise probably care about this. They're f- officially introducing their competitor to Red Hat's live patching. This one's a little different, though. So uh, on November 18th, SUSE announced the availability of SUSE Linux Enterprise live patch. It allows enterprise Linux customers to perform system patching to the kernel without rebooting, obviously saving the cost of downtime and increase- increasing service av- availability. Very important things for an enterprise distribution. SUSE Linux Enterprise live patching based on the KGraph project, which is it's basically KGraph, they just have a fancier name on it, provides a stream of packages to update a running kernel without interruption. So now you have even less reason not to patch your S, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, I forget, K-Splice, I believe is the Red Hat version, K-Splice. They're both Something working like on this right now. Uh, okay, next story in the roundup. Yeah, this doesn't surprise me at all. Employees yep. responsible, employee responsible government breaches have doubled, double, double, doubled in the U.S. Yes. Not a surprise. So, uh, looking at every data breach, uh, which according uh, to this study, there were forty-seven thousand of them in the U.S. government. Now, some of these are just got malware, so data could have leaked, and some of them are, you know, lost a laptop that had data on it and a bunch of things like that. Mm, okay. Uh, but yeah, the number a couple of years ago was like 
25,000 and now it's almost 50,000. Uh, they say that, yeah, so government employees and government contractors are responsible for more uh, data breaches than hackers. Well, you think about it, like, it's going to be more common they have portable computing devices that have more important data on them. Phones, tablets, laptops, it's just more of them now, too. Yeah. This next story is interesting. Uh, the FTC has shut down one of those popular PC cleaner scams. Uh, you know the ones. Tens of thousands of consumers every year get caught up spending millions of dollars into these clean-your-computer traps where sometimes you get roped in by an ad online. Some of them are even sophisticated. They call you or the ad online gets you to call them, and then you get on the line with a support person. They sell you a whole package. Well, uh, as the FTC explains... Telemarketers will say almost anything to even sell you a $500 lifetime subscription in some cases. So they've been doing some busting of some of these. So, you know, you've probably, a lot of you have heard the stories like they got a phone call from somebody. They're yeah, going after I some folks like that. Yeah, someone in the chat too. room said they got one today saying yeah. that they, uh, yeah. oh, your computer has 417 yeah. critical errors and you need to blah. It's like, no, and I'm my, not installing TeamViewer and letting you have access to my machine. My wife answered one the other day and she's a Mac user. And the guy starts telling her that her Windows error log is uh, reporting a lot of errors and that he was from Microsoft. <laughs> and so she played along because I was sitting next to her for my enjoyment. <laughs> it was great. Uh, this next story is uh, it's close to my heart because I love me the lollipop. The Nexus 10, lollipop and the problem with big Android tablets. When it comes to tablets, Google is not necessarily following its own design guidelines. Oh, jeez. Still, still, it's still a problem. Uh, and I've been often tempted, uh, but Ars Technica has a post here about the Google uh, Samsung Nexus 10 tablet. And well, basically, when you have a really large tablet, uh, somehow it doesn't really scale. The, a very no, large it just screen. looks like really blown up phone apps a lot of the times. Yeah. Yes, uh, they have a they have an example here of wasted screen real estate, and they're right. This is a major deficiency still in Android compared to iOS. Well, it's it's I don't know how you deal with it, especially in the app. Uh, yeah. Without almost having a, a tablet version of an app or something. That's it. And the problem is that takes up way more time and way <laughs> more resources. Yep. Uh, and the thing is, is I don't think the tablet deployment is large enough on Android to make it worth it to, uh, boy, yeah, this is horrible. Boy, they have some just brutal, sc- oh, yeah, you know what? All, I've seen all of this stuff they're showing, and it bugs, yeah, the notifications drop down drives me crazy. I've not used anything overly large. Yeah, it, it, it. It's not an awesome experience. I mean, games work great, reading works great, all that kind of stuff. But ooh, they even have proof of concept. This is a great write-up for those of you who care about this kind of thing. They have some examples of how it could be fixed. This is a lot nicer, actually. Hmm. They should do this. So this is a really good Ars Technica. Good find, Alan. Good find. All right. Amnesty, EFF, and Privacy International have put out a free anti-surveillance tool, and I didn't hear anything about it. So I wanted to toss it in the roundup so we could cover it here. Um... It's called, have we talked about, maybe, this sounds kind of, Detect, D-E-T-E? Detect. Detect, yes, thank you. Detect, custom such a spaz. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's an anti-privacy tool, or anti-surveillance tool. It's open source, and it's available for Windows. Uh, and it scans your PC, and it's supposed to find, like, uh, spy software. Nor, they say known surveillance software, targeted right. to monitor humans. <laughs> uh, they go on to talk about, too, how that is. It does have issues, of course, and they have more information over at resistsurveillance.org. I think the biggest one is that they have trouble keeping up with actual the, the definitions of what yeah. these different tools are. Yeah. Interesting, though, that they're attempting to do this to tech, and I hadn't really heard about it. But Well, useful is that sometimes, like, well, if it says I'm clean and I assume I am, that's a bad thing, right? Whereas if I assume I'm always under surveillance, then yes. I won't. Yeah, I suppose it almost it could give you a false sense of security in a way, huh? Yeah. Well, that's very true. 
But, it's, it's hard to say whether it's worth canceling or not, but I guess at this point, they, don't ha they can't manage to maintain it, then they have to uh, tell people to stop trusting it. Yeah, yeah, because it it's, it's going to be harder and harder to keep up with it, right? Yep. And I didn't even know about it. Yeah, So, which might be part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. But then All again, right. you're not a dissident in a country with mass surveillance. Or a Windows so. user. New York City unveils <laughs> the payphone of the future, and it does a whole right. lot more than make so, phone calls. <laughs> uh, currently in New York City, there are 6,500 payphones, and they want to replace them and possibly add more of these new. Uh, basically, it'll be a touchscreen information station, which will connect you with like city services and you know help find stuff, maps, and things like that. Uh, which, you know, uh, onto being in uh, Tokyo, in Japan, and have these big signs with like a local map with like you know here's the hotel you're staying at nice. here's the, the the store you're looking for and the stadium or whatever having something like that but you know so obviously a uh, electronic one that's interactive where i can you know which subway line do i need to take to get from here well to and here it would whatever. it would make sense that there'd probably be power there or so, or, or at least connectivity right. of so, some kind uh, th what they're talking about is having it be a charging station and gigabit wi-fi is it is it is it just a sad state of our world that I immediately, as soon as you say that, get super skeptical? Like, oh, they're going to be tracking my MAC address things. and sucking uh, the data off my USB port. and That'll happen. Also, I don't know if you've seen the designs, but basically the whole side of the thing is like a digital advertisement. So someone's going to smash it, you think? No, they'll oh. just spam ads. ads out of it. Instead of a map. Right. right. Yeah. So it, it won't be a paper ad. It'll be one that they can change and, yeah. and charge less. Big old screen. Yeah, uh, they got a It looks nicer it. than old pay phones. Mm-hmm. You know, in Japan, it's the garbage cans that give out the Wi-Fi. In New York, it'll be payphones. <laughs> the garbage cans. Hey, you got to, yeah, you know what? You got a lot of garbage cans, cans right? It's actually kind of genius if you think yeah. about it because you got garbage cans everywhere. Exactly. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, and uh, yeah, it has a little Wi-Fi symbol on it too. I like it. I want those. I'd love to have those in Seattle. Um, I, I, I have some questions about actually deploying 10,000 of those. What's that going to do to the airwaves? It's like, is anybody going to be able to have gigabit Wi-Fi in their house when there's that permeating everything? If though, if although they have, because it's AC and it's five gigahertz, it won't go through walls. So oh, they're going to do won't AC. Be accessible inside at all. Okay. Well, if it's going to be gigabit, it's going to have to be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's not fast enough. Yeah. Have to be AC. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, and so in that case, it wouldn't go through walls or buildings, and so it would only be available outside. So that has. Here's problems. what I think could be interesting: is if this took off, like if if. You remember, I mean, payphones used to be everywhere, right? Like back well, in the in day. New York, they still, uh, they're also talking about preserving a couple because Superman and so on. That's true. But to me, if you had enough of these, you could almost just make Wi-Fi calls. You just walk up and stand next to one of these things. You walk up to stand next to an old well, payphone and make a phone call over Wi-Fi. Have, well, if they're going to deploy 6,500 of them in a fairly dense metro area, you might be able to just walk down walk the street. Walk around and, and not need cellular service. Ooh, man, my Ting bill so is going to be six bucks, bones straight. Just nothing but six bucks, dude. It's going to be yeah. great. So expect AT&T <laughs> and Verizon to start suing immediately. Yeah, right. Shut that thing down. Or or sell, or they're going to have to sell the services either way. Yeah, or, or your Wi-Fi will be provided. By, or yeah. it'll be uh, in Japan, the way it works is while the Wi-Fi comes out of the garbage can, you need to log in with your account from one of the three yeah, major ISPs. Yeah, I can see to that. I can totally see that. Jeez Louise. Anyway, it's kind of cool. Kind of cool. All right, Alan, I think that brings us to the end of today's Tech Snap, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Now, uh, you can join us live. We're live at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 
4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. JBLive.tv and info for the audio-only stream, which is great for those of you stuck at a desk or commuting down the road over 3G. We've got a bandwidth-friendly version and a high-fidelity 128-kilobit version, which is now apparently high-fidelity. JBLive.info for links to that. Uh, don't forget, you can also email us, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com, or click that contact link or that subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Also, RSS feeds. Just subscribe to the TechSnap show and get us every single week. That way you don't have to think about it. Okay, Alan, anything else we want to cover before we run? Nope. All right, very good. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>